0: eyes of the podcast with Patrick Attaway. My podcast where I discuss writing specifically today, Ralph Ellison's writing as we get into yet another adventure with Invisible Man. Yes, I'm going to get right into it after a few brief words. If you're unaware of the podcast, if this is your first episode listening, you need to go back and listen to the last few episodes because this is Part, what, four? And we are not even through the first half of the book. Now, after this portion where I go over Dr. Bledsoe, we will get into Liberty Paints with Lucius Brockway in the next episode. But before I start reading, I just want to let you know that my latest album 55 by Lurking Vowel is avail- available for streaming wherever you stream albums. It, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it on Spotify. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on iTunes, Apple Music, la da. It's out there. And my new book, Birch, my fourth novel, is available for pre order for your Amazon Kindle you don't have a Kindle and you'd like to support me, you can download the Kindle app to your smart device. Just find Patrick Attaway and Birch. It's $2.99. Now that I've got that portion of the podcast out of the way, I'm just going to start reading. You know, I had a lot to eat today. I had pancakes this morning with bacon and eggs and... I thought that was where the damage would stop, but then my wife suggested we get takeout from Olive Garden. And I've been wanting Olive Garden for a little while, even though I don't like to admit it. Takeout from Olive Garden is far better than eating in the restaurant itself, so of course. And I got fettuccine alfredo, and for once I couldn't finish it. Usually I eat all of it, but after two breadsticks. And my chicken gnocchi soup. I, I really didn't, I didn't even eat all of my chicken. I was like, what is wrong with me? I think it's because I had a big breakfast. I wasn't really hungry, hungry. But then my wife said she wanted a, uh, an evening snack. She wanted something sweet. So I went to Kroger and I got us some Doritos and some Keebler Deluxe. Chips Deluxe. So many bad decisions. I'm like a a drug addict, off the wagon again. Anyway, let me get my sticky note off the page. Okay, so where am I? Jesus Christ. <laughs> so if you're if you're not aware of what's going on, uh, at this point, the Invisible Man has taken. Mr. Norton to see Jim Trueblood, and then they went to the Golden Day, and while they were at the Golden Day, Norton got injured, and now the IAM is in trouble with Dr. Bledsoe. So, he's about to go see Dr. Bledsoe in his office for the first time. So, I'm going to start reading... Right where he leaves Mr. Norton on page 100. I don't know what chapter we're in. I think we're in chapter 4. Maybe 5. Who cares? I got back into the car and drove slowly to the administrative building. A girl waved gaily as I passed, a bunch of violets in her hand. Two teachers in dark suits talked deiriously beside a broken fountain. The building was Quiet. Quiet. Going upstairs, I visualized Dr. Bledsoe with his broad, globular face that seemed to take its form from the fat pressing from the inside, which, an air pressing against the membrane of a balloon, gave it shape and buoyancy. Old buckethead, some of the fellows called him. I never had. He had been kind to me from the first, perhaps because of the letters which the school superintendent had sent to him when I arrived. But, more than that, he was the example of everything I wanted to be. Influential with wealthy men all over the country. Consulted in matters concerning the race, a leader of his people, the possessor of not one but two Cadillacs, a good salary, and a soft, good-looking, creamy, complexioned wife. So, I'm going to stop there because... What does he just describe? He describes someone in power who has influence over the wealthy. Someone who owns two cars, obviously lives in a nice house. And he has a wife that is described as soft, good looking, and creamy complexioned. Creamy complexioned. Hmm. So, she's probably subservient. The word soft is uh, akin to calling someone subservient. She probably doesn't wear the pants in the relationship, so to speak. But a creamy, complexioned wife, she's not white, no. But she's likely light-skinned, you could say. I don't know if the term "light skinned" is politically correct. I'm not up on my my colloquial um, terms, but listen. If I make a mistake along the way, kindly correct me. I I don't know. I don't know. What was more, while back, while black and bald and everything, white folks poke fun at. He had achieved power and authority, had, while black and wrinkled-headed, made himself of more importance in the world than most southern white men. They could laugh at him, but they couldn't ignore him. Yeah, see, the thing that the I.M. chases throughout this novel is power. He believes that the American dream means you obtain power, and doing so as a black man is a huge deal. And Dr. Bledsoe has dug himself a little niche where white people depend on him. And why does the IM get in trouble? Because he threatens to pull the curtain away, so to speak. He's been looking all over for you, the girl at the desk said. When I walked up and looked in, he looked up from the telephone and said, never mind, he's here now and hung up. "'Where's Mr. Norton?' he demanded excitedly. "'Is he all right?' Uh, "'Yes, sir. I I left him at his rooms and came to drive drive you down. "'He wishes to see you.' "'Is anything wrong?' he said, getting up hurriedly and coming around the desk. "'I hesitated. "'Well, is there?' "'The panicky beating of my heart seemed to blur my vision. "'Not now, sir.' "'Now? What do you mean?' "'Well, sir, he had kind of a, a fainting spell. "'Oh, my God!' I knew something was wrong. Why didn't you get in touch with me? He grabbed his black Hamburg, starting for the door. Come on. I followed him, trying to explain. He's all over it now, sir. We got—we were too far away for me to phone. Why did you take him so far, he said, moving with great bustling energy. But I drove him where he wanted to go, sir. Where was that? Back of the slave quarter section, I said with dread. The quarters? Boy, are you a fool? Didn't "'Didn't you know better than to take a trustee over there?' "'He asked me to do so, sir. "'We were going down the walk now, through the spring air, "'and he stopped to look at me with exasperation as though I'd taken— "'I'd suddenly told him black was white. "'Damn what he wants,' he said, climbing to the front seat beside me. "'Haven't you the sense God gave a dog? "'We take these white folks where we want them to go. "'We show them what we want them to see. "'Don't you know that? "'I thought you had some sense.' Reaching Grob Hall, I stopped the car, weak with bewilderment. Don't sit there. Come with me. Just inside the building, I got another shock. As we approached a mirror, Dr. Bledsoe stopped and composed his angry face like a sculptor, making it a bland mask, leaving only the sparkle of his eyes to betray the emotion that I had seen only a moment before. He looked steadily at himself for a moment. Then we moved quietly down the silent hall up the stairs. A co-ed sat at a graceful table stacked with magazines. Before, a great window stood a large aquarium containing colored stones and a small replica of a feudal castle surrounded by goldfish that seemed "'to remain motionless despite the fluttering of their lacy fins, "'a momentary, motionful suspense of time. "'Is Mr. Norton in his room?' he said to the girl. "'Yes, sir, Dr. Bledsoe, sir. "'He said to tell you to come in when he got here.' "'Pausing at the door, I heard him clear his throat "'and then rap softly under the panel with his fist. "'Mr. Norton!' he said, his lips already a smile.' And at the answer, I followed him inside. It was a large light room. Mr. Norton sat in a huge winged chair with his jacket off. A change of clothing lay on the cool bedspread. Above a spacious fireplace, an oil portrait of the founder looked down at me, remotely benign, sad, and in that hot instance profoundly disillusioned. Then a veil seemed to fall. "'I've been worried about you, sir,' Dr. Bledsoe said. "'We expected you at the afternoon session.' Now it's beginning, I thought. Now. And suddenly he rushed forward. Mr. Norton, you're ahead, he cried. A strange grandmotherly concern in his voice. What happened, sir? It's nothing. Mr. Mr. Norton's face was immobile. A mere scratch. Dr. Bledsoe whirled around, his face outraged. Get the doctor over here, he said. Why didn't you tell me that Mr. Norton had been injured? I've already taken care of that. "'Sir,' I said softly, seeing him whirl back. "'Mr. Norton! Mr. Norton! I'm so sorry,' he crooned. "'I thought I'd sent you a boy who was careful, a sensible young man.' "'Why, we've never had an accident before, never, not in seventy-five years, "'I assure you, sir, that he shall be disciplined, severely disciplined. "'But there was no automobile accident,' Mr. Norton said kindly.' nor was the boy responsible. You may send him away. We won't need him now. My eyes suddenly filled. I felt a wave of gratitude at his words. Don't be so kind, sir, Dr. Bledsoe said. You can't be soft with these people. We mustn't pamper them. An accident to a guest of this cottage while he is in the charge of a student is without question the student's fault. That's one of our strictest rules, then to me. Return to your dormitory and remain there until further notice. But it was out of my control, sir, I said. Just as Mr. Norton said, I'll explain, young man, Mr. Norton said with a half-smile. Everything will be explained. Thank you, sir, I said, seeing Dr. Bledsoe looking at me with no change of expression. On second thought, I want you to be in the chapel this evening. Understand me, sir? Yes, sir. I opened the door with a cold hand bumping into the girl who had been at the table when we went inside. Let's talk briefly before we go into the next scene at the chapel. And I'm not going to read much out of that chapter, just enough about Dr. Bledsoe for us to move forward. See, the reason why Dr. Bledsoe is upset is because they're trying to build up the image of black intellectualism and to take a white donor away from the school and show him uh, an oddity of sorts like Jim Trueblood and then take him to the golden day. Like I said earlier, that pulls the curtain away. It perpetuates the stereotypes that they're afraid of. But see, Jim Trueblood is just a human being. But because of his skin color, white people see him differently, of course. But also, black people see him differently because of his actions. See, if Jim Trueblood were white... He wouldn't even be relevant to the the story. In fact, if they passed by a white man who lived in a house like that, uh, I doubt Mr. Norton would even want to speak to him. He wouldn't be intrigued by him. Because what intrigues him about Jim Trueblood is, to a certain degree, sexual. But beyond that, the fact that the I.M. took him off the school grounds and showed him this, and then he ended up being injured and having a fainting spell, well, while Mr. Norton may wave it off, Dr. Bledsoe knows that he's waving it off for a specific reason. And it's not because he's a young boy so what is that reason are we to speculate together well the reason why Dr. Bledsoe is so furious about this is not only because it's a student part of the institution that Mr. Norton is donating to and it reflects poorly on all the other students and even Dr. Bledsoe to a degree the fact is is that the I.M. has caused something that could have uh, damaged outside of Mr. Norton. See, Mr. Norton walks into a room full of his fellow wealthy white rich men. They ask him, hey, how'd you get that that bruise on your your head? And he tells them the story. He spreads the myth of sorts. Maybe not the myth, but... The story of Jim Trueblood. His experiences at the Golden Day. And the fact that he got into a car with a student from the school and this happened. There's so many different repercussions that could occur from this interaction. Alright. I need a sip of my watermelon sparkling water. I also have a candle burning right now. My wife bought me a... A mahogany and suede candle from at home it smells like a man so this next chapter reads like a dream and i had to read several of the paragraphs multiple times to kind of understand what was going on but essentially they're all in a chapel and they have many of the donors there and they're they're here to listen to This man named Homer, who is blind, talk about the origins of the school. But I'm not going to read that part. I'm just reading this part with Dr. Bledsoe. The honored guest moved silently upon the platform, headed toward their high-carved chairs by Dr. Bledsoe with the decorum of a portly head waiter. Like some of the guests, he wore striped trousers and a swallowtail coat with "'black braided lapels topped by a rich ascot tie. "'It was his regular dress for such occasions, "'yet for all its elegance he managed to make himself look humble. "'Somehow his trousers inevitably bagged at the knees "'and the coat slouched in the shoulders. "'I watched him smiling at first, "'one and then another of the guests, "'of whom all but one were white.' And as I saw him placing his hand upon their arms, touching their backs, whispering to a tall, angular-faced trustee, who in turn touched his arm familiarly, I felt a shudder. I, too, had touched a white man today, and I felt that it had been disastrous, and I realized then that he was the only one of us whom I knew, except maybe a barber or a nursemaid who could touch a white man with impunity. And I remember, too, that whenever white guests came upon the platform, he placed his hand upon them as though exercising a powerful magic. I watched his teeth flash as he took a white hand. Then, with all seated, he went to his place at the end of the row of the chairs. So... Dr. Bledsoe is in a position, and this would have taken place in the 40s, where he can touch white people. He can act as if he is their friend. This is the 40s. Remember, those of you who have not seen the documentary about O.J. Simpson that ESPN put out. I had to watch it for an autobiography course. You will recall the instance of a white family at a party or banquet or something, sitting at a table, and they were talking to O.J. Simpson. And afterwards, he went over to a friend, and his friend remarked about it, and he said, they don't see me as a black man, they just see O.J. And Dr. Bledsoe, is in that similar position. He has power. He has appeal. He fulfills something that all of these people want, and he does it well. We're getting into Chapter 6, page 137, where the am goes to meet Dr. Bledsoe. So this is one of my favorite parts of the novel, and it's the only part of the novel that I have dog-eared. And when we were in class last semester, it was actually technically two semesters ago because the other semester just ended, I was, we were specifically asked about a portion of this and this was the portion that I had already dog-eared and marked in the book and I read it aloud in class and I'm going to read it to you here momentarily but we're on page 137. "'Come in,' he said from the half-shadow. "'Then I saw him move in his head, coming forward, his eyes burning. "'He began mildly, as if quietly joking, throwing me off balance. "'Boy,' he said, "'I understand that you not only carried Mr. Norton out of the quarters, "'but you wound up at the sinkhole that golden day. "'It was a statement, not a question.' I said nothing and he looked at me with the same mild gaze had Barbie helped Mr. Norton soften him no it wasn't enough to take him to the quarters you had to make him you had to make him take the complete tour to give him the full treatment was that it no sir I I mean he was ill sir He had to have some whiskey. And that was the only place you knew to go, he said. So you went there because you were taking care of him? Yes, sir. And not only that, he said in a voice that both mocked and marveled, you took him out and sat him down on the gallery veranda piazza, whatever they call it nowadays, and introduced him to the quality. Quality, I frowned. Oh, but he insisted that I stop, sir. There was nothing I could do. Of course, he said. Of course. He was interested in the cabin, sir. He was surprised there were any left. So naturally, you stopped, he said, bowing his head again. Yes, sir. Yes, and I suppose the cabin opened up and told him its life story and all the choice gossip. I started to explain. Boy, he exploded. Are you serious? Why were you out there on the road in the first place? Weren't you behind the wheel? Yes, sir. Then haven't we bowed and scraped and begged and lied enough decent homes and drives for you to show him? Did you think that white man had to come a thousand miles all the way from New York and Boston to Philadelphia just for you to show him a saloon? Don't just stand there. Say something. But I was only driving him, sir. I only stopped there after he ordered me to. Ordered you? He said. He ordered you? Damn it. White folk are always giving orders. It's a habit with them. Why didn't you make an excuse? Couldn't you say they had sickness, smallpox, or picked another cabin? Why that true blood shack? My God, boy, you're black and living in the South. Did you forget how to lie? "'Lie, sir, lie to him, lie to a trustee, sir, me?' "'He shook his head with a kind of anguish. "'And me thinking I'd picked a boy with brain,' he said. "'Didn't you know you were endangering the school?' "'But I was only trying to please him.' "'Please him!' And here you are, a junior in college, Why, the dumbest black bastard in the cotton patch knows that the only way to please a white man is to tell him a lie. What kind of education are you getting around here? Who really told you to take him out there? He did, sir, no one else. Don't lie to me. That's true, sir. I warned you who suggested it. I swear, sir, no one... No one told me inward, "This isn't the time to lie. I'm no white man. Tell me the truth." It was as though he'd struck me. I stared across the desk, thinking, "He called me that? Answer me, boy. That," I thought, noticing the throbbing of a vein that rose between his eyes, thinking, "He called me that." For those of you who don't know the origins of the n-word it is the word that was used to describe and delineate the first black slaves that came to this region, North America. I believe it was done in the 1500s. Now this is a word that has been used to describe black people in this country. For centuries. Now at a certain point, obviously it began as derogatory because they were enslaved people. After We have to remember, even though we are tempted to keep calling them slaves, which I just did, it would be better to refer to them as enslaved people. Why? Because they were not born slaves, they were enslaved. Everyone is born free. It is a choice of someone in more power to take away that freedom. So, that word has power to it, and it extends back a long time. Why is it still offensive? Well, I have talked about the Louie episode... Uh, with the F word, and I don't mean fuck. And I'm not going to say the word on the podcast. But Louis C.K. asked his gay friend, who's also a comedian, are you offended when I use that word in my stand-up? And he says, no, but what you have to remember is that there's someone in your audience who's probably gay and has probably been beaten to a pulp while they had that name spat in their face that is a word the n-word is been used while inflicting violence upon black people while taking rights away from black people so it has a great deal of power to it now like all words it is given power by us but that is the result of years of harassment, hatred, disenfranchisement, etc. And for, especially in the 40s, a black man calling another black man that word, well, Bloodzo has successfully distanced himself from the I Am in terms of race. This is another reason why the I Am envies him. And he thought all along that they were of the same ilk. Instead, what he's finding is that he's very much different from Dr. Bledsoe. I wouldn't lie, sir, I said. Then who was that patient you were talking with? I never saw him before, sir. What was he saying? I don't recall at all. The the man was raving. Speak up. What did he say? He thinks that he lived in France and that he was a great doctor. Continue. He said that I believed that white was right. This is a phrase that pops up again in the book. What? Suddenly, his face twitched, cracked like the surface of dark water. And you do, don't you, Dr. Bledsoe said. Suppressing a nasty laugh. Well, don't you? I did not answer, thinking, You, you. Who was he? Did you ever see him before? No, sir, I I hadn't. Was he northern or southern? I don't know, sir. He struck his desk. College for Negroes, boy. What do you know other than how to ruin an institution in half an hour that it took over a hundred, half a hundred years to build. Did he talk Northern or Southern? He talked like a white man, I said, except that his voice sounded Southern like one of ours. I'll have to investigate him. A Negro like that should be under lock and key. Across the campus, the clock struck the quarter hour and something inside me seemed to muffle its sound. I turned to him desperately. Dr. Bledsoe, I'm awfully sorry. I had no intention of going there, but things just got out of hand. Mr. Norton understands how it happened. Listen to me, boy, he said loudly. Norton is one man, and I'm another, and while he might think he's satisfied, I know that he isn't. Your poor judgment has caused this school incalculable damage. Instead of uplifting the race, you've torn it down. He looked at me as though I had committed the worst crime imaginable. Don't you know we can't tolerate such a thing? I gave you an opportunity to serve one of our best white friends, a man who can make your fortune, but in return you dragged the entire race into the slime." Suddenly, he reached for something beneath a pile of papers, an old leg shackle from slavery, which he proudly called a symbol of our progress. A leg shackle pops up in the book later on. (laughs) Again, it's like poetry, it rhymes. You've got to be disciplined, boy, he said. There's no ifs and ands about it. But you gave Mr. Norton your word. Don't stand there and tell me what I already know. Regardless of what I said, as the leader of this institution, I can't possibly let this pass. Boy, I'm getting rid of you. It must have happened when the middle struck the desk, for suddenly I was leaning toward him, shouting with outrage. I'll tell him, I said. I'll go to Mr. Norton and tell him. You've lied to both of us. What? You have the nerve to threaten me? In my own office? I'll tell him, I screamed. I'll tell everybody. I'll fight you. I swear, I'll fight. Well, he said, sitting back. Well, I'll be damned. For a moment, he looked me up and down, and I saw his head go back into the shadow, hearing a high, thin sound like a cry of rage. Okay, so at this point, the I am has screwed himself. I need a drink of water. While he was going to be expelled, regardless. He could have gone to a different college. He could have lived uh, a different life. But what happens after this is the result of his arrogance. Now, I understand it very well. When I was younger, I would have probably reacted this way. Story time with Patrick. So, my wife and I were talking about what I would do. I don't, I'm not really sure how it came up, but yesterday I said that, you know, now, if I had a billion dollars now, I would want to help people. Now, I'd, I'd still be a lazy shit, not want to leave the house very often, but I'd still help people. You know, I wouldn't shoot myself into space I wouldn't invest in Twitter just for the hell of doing it. I would want to do something more with that money because I could. You know, a billion dollars is more money than I would need. You know, if you gave me a million dollars, you know, I could ration that out, live a comfortable life without having to worry too much. But a billion dollars? that that's that's a lot of money it would be difficult to spend all that money so while i might you know move <laughs> i might buy a few guitars who knows I, I am going to invest in people but what i also said was that if i had been given a billion dollars when i was 18. I would have turned out to be a little shit because I was a little shit. And if you gave me a billion dollars, that would have given me everything I ever wanted when I was 18, which nobody really deserves and nobody really needs. So the I am is powerless in the situation, but he thinks that he can, turn the tables by threatening Bledsoe, rather, uh, whether physically, whether by telling Mr. Norton, what have you. He thinks that he can expose Bledsoe for being a liar, for being manipulative, for uh, perpetuating a lie, but see, what he doesn't realize is that all the white donors are aware that he's perpetuating a lie. That lie is what is going to reform the black men who go to the school, because that's what they want. So, in order to maintain that mentality, he has to perpetuate the lie. Anyway, let's get back into reading. For a moment, he looked me up and down, and I saw his head go back into the shadow, hearing a high, thin sound like a cry of rage. Then his face came forward, and I saw his laughter. For an instant, I stared. Then I wheeled and started for the door, hearing him sputter, wait, wait, behind me. I turned. He gasped for breath, propping his huge head up with his hands as tears streamed down his face. "'Come on, come,' he said. "'Come on, son,' his voice amused and conciliatory. "'It was as though I were being put through a fraternity initiation "'and found myself going back.' "'He looked at me, still laughing with agony. "'My eyes burned. "'Boy, you are a fool. "'Your white folk didn't teach you anything, "'and your mother, Wit, had left you cold.' What has happened to you young Negroes? I thought you had caught on to how things are done down here. But you don't even know the difference between the way things are and the way things are supposed to be. My God, he gasped. What is the race coming to? Why, boy, you can tell anyone you like. Sit down there. Sit down, sir, I say. Reluctantly, I sat torn between anger and fascination, hating myself for obeying. So, this is the next portion that I, I spoke about earlier. And there are words in here that I can't say, but I want to say that me not being able to say The N-word here. I I don't want to. But. It takes the potency away from. Ellison's intent. He didn't intend this. For a white guy. To read on his podcast. He intended readers. To read this silently to themselves. So they don't have to say such words out loud. But. That. That. That word has a lot of potency on page 143. I'm on page 142 where all this starts. And uh, it's a doozy. Tell anyone you like, he said. I don't care. I wouldn't raise my little finger to stop you. Because I don't owe anyone a thing, son. Who, Negroes? Negroes don't control this school, or much of anything else. Haven't you even learned that? No, sir. They don't control this school, nor white folk either. True, they support it, but I control it. Eyes big and black, and I say yes, sir, as loud as any bird head when it's convenient. But I steal the king down here. I don't care how much it appears otherwise. Power doesn't have to show off. Power is confident, self-assuring, self-starting and self-stopping, self-warming and self-justifying. When you have it, you know it. Let the negro sneaker and the crackers laugh. Those are the facts, son. The only ones I even pretend to please are big white folk. And even those I control more than they control me. This is a power set up, son, and I'm at the controls. You think about that. When you buck against me, you're bucking against power. Rich white folk's power. The nation's power. Which means government power. This is a very important portion of the novel because it addresses what the I am lust after. Remember, in the beginning of the novel, he's stealing electricity. He's literally stealing power. And it's a big deal where he is, right? But no one in the in the other part of the world, other states, other cities, other countries... They don't care. They don't know who he is. No one actually knows who he is, but he has power. People don't know who Dr. Bledsoe is outside of this small community. But Dr. Bledsoe has created a niche for himself where people rely on him. That is power. That is something that Lucius Brockway has. Dr. Bledsoe has power where... He can essentially play white if he wanted to. He doesn't necessarily, but he separates himself from other black people in a way that the I am very much wants. And I tell you something about your sociology teachers, and they're afraid to tell you if there weren't men like me running schools like this, there'd be no South nor North either. No. "'And there'd be no country, not as it is today. "'You think about that, son,' he laughed. "'With all your speech-making and studying, I thought you understood something. "'But you... "'All right, go ahead, see Norton. "'You'll find that he wants you disciplined. "'He may not know it, but he does, "'because he knows that I know what is best for his interest. "'You're a black-educated fool, son.' These white folk have newspapers, magazines, radio, spokesmen to get their ideas across. If they want to tell a lie, they can tell it so well that it becomes the truth. And if I tell them that you're lying, they'll tell the world even if you prove you're telling the truth. Because it's the kind of lie they want to hear. I heard the high, thin laugh again. You're nobody, son. You don't exist. Can't you see that? The white folk tell everybody what to think, except men like me. I tell them that's my life, telling white folk how to think about the things I know about. Shocks you, doesn't it? Well, that's the way it is. It's a nasty deal, and I don't always like it myself. But you listen to me. I didn't make it, and I know that I can't change it. But I've made my place in it, and I'll have every Negro in the country hanging on tree limbs by morning if it means staying where I am. He does not care about his race. He doesn't care about advancing his race. He cares about surviving and providing for himself. That is the most American ideal out there, is it not? Especially today. I didn't want to talk about the school shooting, okay? And I'm not going to, but it's unfortunate that... And you're going to get upset with me, and I don't give a fuck. It's unfortunate that something that happens like this becomes so obscenely polarizing and political. And you may think, well, how can you avoid talking about politics with something like this? Uh, because after a while you stop talking about the victims and you even stop talking about the person who enacted the violence against the victims you stop talking about the police force that allowed him to continue shooting people which that also happened with columbine by the way by the way And there have been other school shootings where the police didn't even show up at all because by the time they got there, it was already over. Now, (laughs) there are a lot of things wrong in this scenario. And you can't blame it all on one thing. I even saw someone on Reddit, because I'm an idiot and I still read Reddit from time to time, say that... Bringing up mental health right now doesn't solve the issue. Um, that's where it all begins, though. And they said that if it were a mental health issue, then why doesn't happen it happen in other countries? Again, politicizing it. I understand wanting gun reform. I understand wanting to change things. I definitely understand wanting to make it a lot more difficult for people to get their hands on automatic, automatic rifles. I don't have a problem with that. But it's just another excuse to have a pissing match with each other. When in reality, you would think that we would be uh, more discerning and... cooperative regarding this considering children were, were murdered and someone who decided that he was a victim and decided to victimize other people by killing them, he's a product of something in this country, is he not? And what Dr. Bledsoe is doing is looking out for himself just like all the politicians and all the people on Twitter. They're using this as an opportunity for their platform. So I would say that no matter what your opinion on this is, it's shifting away from what's important because you think that this is the time to effect change. The time to effect change never stops. But it also doesn't happen overnight. And when people start talking about Biden forgiving student debt with the the flick of his pen, it's not that fucking simple. Just like it's not that fucking simple to initiate universal health care, to initiate Medicare for all. What you don't understand is that there are repercussions for all things in our government, good or bad. So, saying that you want change overnight, it's never going to happen. People have been advocating for gun control for decades. Michael Stipe, in the early 90s, stood in front of a crowd with people televising him to millions of people in their living rooms where he had a hat on that said, ban guns, stop handguns, bullshit, something like that, and it didn't change anything. It's, we've been through so many different massacres and shootings. Nothing has really changed. And it becomes less about the victims and more about advancing what we believe is right. When in reality, how can we say what's right? Again. I'm done with this conversation, okay? If you want to interpret my words as you see fit, go ahead. You're no different than all the people who work at CNN or Fox News who just make up bullshit. But Dr. Bledsoe would love you for that, because he does it too. I mean it, son. I had to be strong and purposeful to get where I am. I had to wait and plan and lick around. Yes, I had to act the N-word, he said, acting, adding another fiery yes. I don't even insist that it was worth it, but now I'm here, and I mean to stay. After you win the game, you take the prize and you keep it protected. There's nothing else to do, he shrugged. A man gets old when in his place, son. So you go ahead, you tell your story, march your truth against my truth, because what I've said is truth, the broader truth. Test it, try it out. When I started out, I was a young fellow, but I no longer listened, nor saw more than the play of light upon the metallic disc of his glasses, which now seemed to float within the disgusting sea of his words. Truth truth. What was truth? Nobody I knew. Not even my own mother would believe me if I tried to tell them. Nor would I tomorrow, I thought. Nor would I. I gazed helplessly at the grain of the desk, then passed his head to the case of loving cups behind his chair. Above the case, a portrait of the founder looked non-committedly down. Your arms are too short to box with me, son, and I haven't Had to really clip a young Negro in years. No, he said getting up. They haven't been so cocky as they used to be. This time I could barely move. My stomach was knotted and my kidneys ached. My legs were rubbery for three years. I had thought of myself as a man and here with a few words. He'd made me helpless as an infant. Before we end this episode... I'm going to give you a little bit more analysis via my essay. I was going to save my essay for the last episode of the series, but I want to read it in parts. And I've already talked about the fact that I uh, do not give you permission to plagiarize my paper, because I know, not that it's so great that you would want to, but I know that there might be someone out there who's, an 18 or 19 year old student in their first year of college or maybe a little bit down the line and you've been assigned the invisible man and you need help on a paper and you don't know what to do. So you're listening to a podcast that you randomly found. You have no idea who I actually am. The title of the essay or of the article as my professor referred to it is your head in the lion's mouth examining power dynamics in Invisible Man. It is 23 pages long. So, Ralph Ellison examines the American Dream as a falsehood in Invisible Man, a novel where the protagonist never tells the audience his true name, as if his experience parallels the many Americans who read his story. Commencing the novel chronologically after the story, the narrator, also known as the I Am, appears disoriented as he processes the experiences which led to him entering a coal cellar and stealing electricity. The IM's arrogance originates as youthful ignorance. Even in chapter one when he admits naivety after his experiences in the novel he lies that he accepts what people tell him. In the instances when the IM believes Bledsoe about the recommendation letters he follows a lie in New York and fails at securing the jobs. Bledsoe insures him and his first job at Liberty Paints. While the I.M. initially dreams of New York as his second chance, Bledsoe's letters force him to dream about revenge as he seeks power in the Brotherhood. Each time he suffers embarrassment or perceived injustice is at the hands of someone more powerful than him. Ambition and naivety act as a distraction to finding himself and discovering that power. Therefore, when he steals power from monopolated light and power, he symbolically takes vengeance for those who wrong him throughout the novel. And after the first paragraph, I must drink. I wanted to skip down to the portions that I wrote about Blood, so I don't need to read you the whole damn paper. This is a very long paragraph, but it spans three pages. While the I.M. accepts the power dynamics he experiences at the Battle Royale, Dr. Bledsoe's revelations in Chapter 6 obliterate what the I.M. believes about truth and consequences. Despite that Mr. Norton adores hearing Jim Trueblood and does not blame the I.M. for his injuries, Dr. Bledsoe only regards the I.M.'s actions as damaging to the college. The college operates on white trustees' money, so their instructors and students accept segregation and inequality. Their mission statement does not include educating black men for the sake of bettering their race. Ideally, these men enter the workforce and accept their position in American society as a lesser race without rebelling against the white patriarchy. Dr. Bloodsoe possesses tremendous power in his position as a product of this institute, but he perpetuates the illusion that blacks are inferior. Given Dr. Bloodsoe's age, his parents were likely enslaved, so he feels protective of the institute for more than professional reasons this position delivers him from poverty and sets an example of potential for all black men sitting at a desk wearing a suit holding a leg chapel, shackle creates a juxtaposition that screams be your own father as the vet later tells the I.M. in his naivety the I.M. threatens dr bledsoe which probably leads to dr bledsoe sending him to new york rather than merely expelling him this moment parallels the battle royale when the MC questions the IM about saying social equality. Mister Brockway violently turning on the IM and Brother Jack revealing his fake eye to intimidate the IM. Again, the IM stands up to the roaring lion and Doctor Bledsoe bites him. Doctor Bledsoe enacts the father's, the grandfather's philosophy to his advantage in that he gains power through saying yes and acquiring a position of power. Without Dr. Bledsoe, the college falls apart because he helped create the institution and in how the school operates. Essentially, the I.M. underestimates Dr. Bledsoe and that the white trustees will never get rid of him for any reason. Possessing permanence lends itself to power. He will not stand beside the I.M. merely because they share the same race. Dr. Bledsoe's position transcends race, and he will not allow other African Americans to hold him down. He understands a black man cannot affect change during this period. Thus, he must accept the white institution, even if he does not morally condone segregation or unequal pay. Publicly, Dr. Bledsoe perpetuates these inequalities and enacts the punishment for students who defy them. His power comes from saving his own skin and doing that. Doing what? The white trustees want rather than preaching social equality. He all but plainly states that power is not acquired through rebellion but maintaining status quo. While the IM did nothing morally wrong nor broke any rules while he drove Mr. Norton, Dr. Bledsoe spares him none of the consequences to protect the image of the school and his powers. Like the Battle Royale, the IM does not have the ability to stop Dr. Bledsoe. Therefore, he dreams of revenge through obtaining power in New York. In the next episode, I will get into Lucius Brockway and Liberty Paints. This has been Patrick Attaway with D of the Podcast. Happy weekend, happy writing, happy memorial day. Bye.